Hi guys, it's Dan from Shifted Hockey, and welcome to another episode of Shifted Radio. Today on our show, we're going to be discussing the development of an off-ice and on-ice combine, complete with testing parameters for minor hockey athletes here in the greater Toronto area. Our co-host today will be our longtime trainer, Dennis Lindsay. Dennis has worked with countless professional athletes and youth athletes in his long extended career as a strength and conditioning coach and human physiology specialist. Okay, Denny, welcome to the show. Good to have you here. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Um, so yeah, let's talk about uh, how we're going to implement this. First of all, off ice protocol, because this is your forte. And I know that some of the stuff I have written up here, are just very basic, uh, few tests here um i'd like to kind of go through it and iron out some details so what do you think initially well i like the idea that a lot of what you have has the idea of power and body weight ratio in it that's doable for all athletes across all age groups right that's the most important thing you want to do tests that you can actually apply across a wide variety of people um, and still give them some stats to work towards whether you're a really good player or not so good player a heavy player a light player a tall player a short player the more it's it's expandable across you know that body weight ratio, the better it will be. Um, so starting off in the very far, first part, you've got repeat long jump, vertical jump, um, which is two different tests actually put together, and you have it listed as lower body power, which is great and true. How many repeats are you thinking? Initially, I would the, the long jump. I, I know a lot of the stuff we've done in here have have been like three in a row, just kind of simultaneous jumps. Right. So like jump land, jump land, jump land. So. Yeah. Um, you're spending as little time on the ground as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, the vertical jump, I don't know if we had to do a repeat vert test. I just like to, I like that idea of um, constant contact and getting on and off the ground as quick as possible. Right. So the typical vertical jump test is three tries, but not, not synchronously, like not right at the same time. Right. Um, the repeat long jump, the three-peat, can be a uh, triple long jump, basically. And the idea there is to see what your total is. Um, because a lot of athletes, when they get their first jump done, if they just put all their effort into one jump, they can really stretch it out. But the problem with stretching out is that they can't apply another jump right after that. So when we test three jumps for long jump, we can find a lot more about what's going to happen with your strides, your lengths. If you're going to have a, a consistent um, you know, power through all of your lengths through three different jumps, we can look at that ratio and see where you're at. So the, the three-peat long jump is actually a really good one, but it's for a whole different purpose. It does tell us about your lower body power, but it tells us about your ability to to transfer that power consistently across um, cyclic movements, more than one movement. Right. Vertical jump is just straight one time, all out power, jump as high as you can, land, and uh, and then after a second or two of rest, we do another try, and you get three tries at that. So they both have their value, but vertical jump is pure power, repeat long jump is repetitive power. Perfect. Okay, so next we have seated medicine ball toss. Okay, so seated medicine ball toss is now actually a test used in the NHL entry draft combine. Um, when I first started using it about 15 years ago, while I was up at York, they, they didn't put it in. They had a push-pull apparatus that they used. The push-pull apparatus is terrific, but not everybody has one of those. It's really costly. It's hard to truck around. Um, this way, you have one medicine ball you can use on a constant basis across different groups. The only problem you have with the medicine ball to- uh, toss is you have to make sure that whatever ball you're using is going to be the same ball. If you're testing beginning of summer or end of summer or three times through the summer, you have to make sure it's the same weight. You have to make sure the weight you're picking is relative that's going to be good for almost all the athletes in your team or in your group you have. 
So just because you have a kids who are all 16 years old doesn't mean that they all use the exact same weight ball, or it means that you might go with a lighter weight ball so the, the lighter kids can actually have a chance to throw it, and the heavier kids just have a chance to throw it further. And believe it or not, they might not necessarily do that. Right. So, so I, I'm thinking, sorry, in, initially I'm just thinking that uh, nowhere over a 10 or 12 pound ball would be probably suffice for Never, this age Not even group. for pros. No, we look at probably about an eight pound ball is the most we use for a pro athlete, sometimes a 10 pound ball. And as you work your way down, it's like a four pound ball for the younger, for the younger age groups. Okay. So seated medicine ball toss, you have listed in there as an upper body power test, which is exactly what it is. It's like vertical jump for your arms. Right. Um, the, the main goal here is, is being tight on form and we have to make sure that um, the marking situation is, is the most important. You have to have the space for this because there are some kids who could throw this up to you know 16 feet, depending on what weight ball you have. So you have to make sure you have a distance for that throw to happen, the height for that throw to happen in case they're, in case they're you know, able to throw it up a little bit higher or you're in a hallway for a rink or something like that. Um, whatever you do with these tests has to be something you can take with you anywhere you go. And it shouldn't be affected too much by your location. If I do it in a hallway in a rink, or if I do it in a gym in a school, or if I do it you know, anywhere else, it should really be quite repeatable. Right. And as far as seated medicine ball toss versus straight up bench press tests, how do you feel about that? Well, bench press test is terrific. The problem is only certain issues can do bench press tests to begin right. with. So if they're not like 15 to 16 starting to bench press and have good form with it, you're kind of wasting your time finding that out. That's the first thing they're saying in the, in the NHL entry draft as well is that they're collecting data off 16 and 17 year olds, which really doesn't tell them a lot because half those kids aren't even fully grown yet. Yeah, they're big boys, they have big numbers, but those guys, when they're actually done growing at 24, are totally different machines. So to test bench press too young doesn't tell you very much. Um, the seated medicine ball toss will give you power, which a bench press won't necessarily give you. Um, so it's actually probably one of the best tests you can use, especially from a, from a long-term athletic development plan and from a physical literacy plan. You know, remember, physical literacy is run, jump, throw. How can you move your body or move implements around your body as quick and as effectively as possible as an athlete? So a seated medicine ball test for a hockey player is no different than a seated medicine ball toss for a basketball player or a baseball player even or a, or a soccer player. It still tells us upper body pure power. It still tells us your max distance. And it still gives us a number that we can use in your overall fitness scale. Awesome. Okay, Denny. So we've got lower body power covered. We've got upper body power relatively covered. Um, let's start talking about strength to weight ratio. First of all, why it's important. Now, obviously, a lot of uh, a lot of scouts, coaches, even parents themselves and the players are thinking about, oh, well, my kid's not growing quite yet or, or my kid's very... Uh, very athletic and he, he's, he hit his growth spurt last year so he, he's really big or he's he's not that big whatever the case may be but then people start to lose sight of the importance of how strong or powerful they are based on how much they weigh or how tall they are yeah so the the problem with that is strength to weight ratio is probably still more important than how much weight you can lift only so the fact that you can bench press 250 pounds regardless of how big you are is a great little thing, but it doesn't mean a whole lot if you really can't support the work that your body is required to do. So when a guy bench presses, not all guys do full range. Not all guys get full movement. Not all guys have uh, a way to properly limit how much they're using their chest versus using their legs and their back and their hips based on their form and their technique. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, when you do strength to weight ratio type exercises, and bench press can be one if you pick a certain set weight relative to each guy, right. but that's really hard to organize and set up and have equipment for and do it when you're kind of traveling around doing testing on a regular basis and seeing lots of kids different places. So push-ups and pull-ups are the two best ones you can do with that, and that's what we have in the third phase of tests here. 
So in a push-up test, it's really easy to make sure your rules are, are formulated. Here's, what, here's where your hands have to be, here's where your feet have to be, here's where your body has to move, here's what I'm looking for, and I will pass or fail you. That's pretty simple. As long as the same person is doing the test on a regular basis for that, you're going to get the same kind of results. The person who's testing it has to be a hardcore evaluator. You're not there to get fluffy numbers and make somebody feel good. You're there to make sure somebody knows what they need to work on. Right. Push-ups is, is the easiest one by far, and it's the most relevant one by far because push-up isn't so much like a lot of kids think in hockey about your ability to push somebody else around. It's actually the ability to save yourself on the boards. Somebody else is running behind you or close to you and trying to shove you into the boards and take you out of the play. The only thing that's going to save you is your hands against the boards and your ability to keep your face away from the boards, be able to keep your body away from the boards, be able to get your feet moving, be able to trap the puck there by having your body further away from the boards. All the protection things you need to do either on your face, your body, or the puck are come up from a push-up. Pull-up test is a really good test, but unfortunately, you can't bring a pull-up bar around with you everywhere you go. And it's also not, it's not an easy test to do because a lot of kids don't have the right strength-to-weight ratio to do a proper pull-up in the very first phase of training. Some kids can do it when they're 12, but all of a sudden can't do it when they're 14 because they hit a huge growth spurt. Other kids can do it when they're 14, but couldn't do it when they're 12 because they just weren't strong enough. So pull-ups is a tough one because you get a lot of zeros on that. Believe it or not, proper push-ups you get zeros on too, but at least you get zeros that are, that are commendable zeros and you can see where the lack is. Whereas a pull-up, it's very hard to tell. Is it your arms? Is it your body? Is it your core? Is it your shoulder-specific and stability? What's going on here? Whereas push-ups is pretty straightforward. And you hit on a pretty important subject there too in terms of uh, reliability uh, and having the same evaluator for the most part across all uh, people being tested. Uh, yep. Now that, that comes into play when you know, parents or, or players are evaluating themselves based on their numbers versus their friends' numbers or their teammates' numbers and where they rank in terms of all of these people that are being evaluated. If, the same, if, if I test someone and you test another kid, um, you know, our, our eyesight might not, be, might not match up. What, what we're counting as a full rep should, for the most part, be the same and streamlined, but there's always a you know, case of, of a mix-up here or there. So it, it is much, much more efficient to have the same evaluator across all people being evaluated. You're right. Absolutely. And on top of that, the, the issue becomes that when people do mass testing or group testing, you know, if you pick, like a lot of times what will happen is there's not enough, there's not enough quote-unquote staff there at whatever gym or facility you're at. And so what they end up doing is they end up saying, okay, well, here, we're going to get a parent to help, we're going to get a coach to help. And they get a biased opinion already starting before you even start the test. And it might not seem right to say that, but let's call a spade a spade. People will make mistakes. People will not focus on what their job is. When I do testing with athletes, my job is to make sure that this is a pass or a fail on the purpose of, am I going to make you better? Are you going to make you better? So if I let you get away with a, a shady kind of push-up once or twice, then every other piece of data I can possibly give you is wasted. You know, I have to make sure that what I'm telling you is a push-up is an actual push-up, and what I give to you is actually what you earned. And that way, if you want to be mad at something, be mad at your push-ups and fix them. If you want to be mad at me, then if I was testing a team of, of any level, especially at a pro level, we used to keep red marks for all the teams that I would work with in the NHL and the OHL. If an, if an athlete was tested and had an attitude towards how we told them they did or didn't do on push-ups, there would be a red mark put beside that. And scouts and agents and general managers looked at those red marks more often than they looked at the numbers. The fact that you can do 20 push-ups is is great or not great, who cares? But if you have an attitude about how you did your push-ups or how you were told you didn't do your push-ups properly, that's a bigger problem because you can't shut up and follow directions. Right, and it's also a matter of your discipline, like you said, and how you're learning. A big part of what we do here at Shifted Hockey, as you know, is assessing an athlete, giving them exactly 
the right feedback, um, telling them what they're doing great and what they're not doing so great. And up from that point, it's up to them to, you know, work on things and, and fix things. And if you you can't, if you don't have the stomach to realize, you know, what you might not be great at, um, you know, you're not going to be able to have much success later on because you're not able to work on those those weaknesses per yeah. se. It's a simple thing. Hard rules create hard results. Okay. So the next one is pretty near and dear to me, to be honest, because uh, the entire time that I've been training with you, Danny, it's been probably 13 or 14 years now. But mm. a lot of other places I've noticed um, that other teammates of mine have been training at, you know, th they do a good job. They run a good program, but they're so concerned with performance and, you know, getting four or five reps very clean and doing it in a fixed gym and in a closed environment. Um, the thing that I think sets you apart, to be honest, from any other place in the city, in the world, um, as far as talking to other athletes, um, is your ability to train the fatigue percentage. I think that when you come to, when you come to, to Dennis and, and, and the athletes gym, and it, just from talking to, to, to teammates that I've played with over the last few years, you know, they always tell me, you know, how... How are you in such great shape like later in the season? How are you not tired? How are you always the last one off the ice every single day? Whatever, blah, blah, whatever it is. And I really don't feel like the training kicks in until, you know, the halfway point of the season and onward. And I, I feel fantastic because my fatigue percentage is much, much lower than that of my counterparts. Um, and that comes from, you know, the repetitive work that we, we've done in here year after year after year. Um, just wanted you to, to touch a little bit on that and, and what, what you think should be the, the, the testing parameters as far as uh, conditioning tests and f fatigue percentage tests. Right. Okay. So you're absolutely right. It is a little different. Now, people are trying to get into it and trying to copy it. Um, there's a few places in Toronto that have got staff who used to be my staff who are working there now or running their own places now. So you see a few more people up there trying to copy it and do the same kind of things. It's not a copy as in I designed it. It's just copied in the sense that a lot of people don't know how to program for it and test for it as efficiently as they could or should. So we're looking at fatigue ratio. And the thing about fatigue ratio is you're always looking at the idea that, yeah, okay, even on bench press, like we talked about earlier, you know, your bench press test might show that you can bench press 250 pounds. But after you've done a 30-second shift, you don't have a 250-pound max bench press anymore. You have a 185-pound max bench press now. And after you do another 30-second shift, you're down to 185-pound max bench press now. So the fact that you have a 250-pound max bench press hasn't really changed your entire game the way you thought it did. The ability to find out what your percentage is that you can use on a constant basis is what's more important. So fatigue ratio helps us determine that. So your max bench press might be 250 pounds, but your fatigue ratio might tell us that your critical bench press is somewhere around 190, 195. So why aren't we training your 190, 195 a bit more? Because you want to use that five, six, seven, eight times in one shift when you're battling a guy who outweighs you a little bit more. It doesn't mean you have to be able to lift that man. It means you have to be able to move yourself as well as possible and repeatedly as best as possible. So whether it's a bench press, a push or a shove in front of the net, whether it's a, a sprint test of any sort, we're looking at doing some repeats, doing some cyclic movement, and we're looking at trying to find out when your body wants to kind of give up or fail at something. So a typical one we use for this that you have written out here is the repeat sprint test, which is normally known as the, the um, repeated high intensity endurance test or repeated high intensity um, test period. So you're looking at typically doing something that's 20, 30, or 40 seconds long in general. Um, you're doing about four to six repeats, and you have a set time frame to get them done in. And the idea is to plot across that axis each one of your times and see how much it fatigues 
as you, as you get less rest for more work. And then when we finish that test and we plot that out, we not only know your speed, we, we not only know what your overall conditioning is, we can even might check your heart rate or stuff like that, depending on what else we use, but we can also see what your percent fatigue ratio is. And when we see what your percent fatigue ratio is, that can help us set up and does help me set up all the circuits we do from that point on. When we pick 45 seconds work with 15 seconds recovery, I'm picking that for a reason relative to what you did on your fatigue ratios, not relative to the fact that I think it's a good number for me to use with you. It's not what fits in my gym. It's not you know the ideal thing with the group that comes in the door. It's what's gonna get you the results you need to get. If you fatigue at 30 seconds, then it's not gonna be a 45 second set where you, where you have a 15 second re, you know, rest period. It's gonna be a 30 or a 25 second set where you learn max and then we give you a small amount of, of rest and repeat. So the idea is working around what you can test as and putting that directly into how we wanna train you to make you a better athlete. Right, because the reps that you own, the reps that you are able to do when you're tired, that's the stuff that coaches, that your teammates can rely on, that you can rely on full tilt during the season, late in the game when you're tired or late in a playoff run, um, when you're exhausted and you need to kind of scrounge up that that last putt getting out or the last shopping block to the last dump out, whatever it is. Yeah, that's what we call critical. It's the same as, as in business. It's critical mass. It's what can you actually handle? You know, what you think you want to handle, what you project you want to handle, what you think you're going to do um, is one thing, but what can you actually properly handle? And so you get that critical number on whatever test you're talking about, whether it's push-ups, whether it's long jump distance, whether it's repeat sprint test, you find out what that critical number is that you can do on a repetitive basis, and that becomes the number we're trying to improve the most. The fact that I can improve your maximum number doesn't mean that you're gonna transfer that all the time, every time, consistently. The fact you can bench press 250 pounds and you start off the summer bench pressing 230 pounds doesn't mean your 195 pound bench press is gonna drastically go up with four repeats. It means that it might actually go down because you worked purely on strength, you didn't work much on strength endurance, and so now you've got 20 more pounds on your max bench, but you're actually not a better, more conditioned athlete. You're a better bench presser. So what are you going up with your job for? You wanna be a better athlete. Right. My job, and the reason why we call it the athlete's gym, is to make you a better athlete. I'm not making you a better hockey player, I'm not making you a better sprinter, or I'm not making you a better you know, fencer or boxer or whatever it happens to be. I'm making you a better athlete. And then you take that with you to the ice or the field or whatever it is you do, and you work with your coach and you become a better hockey player, soccer player, basketball player, whatever it is. Excellent. All right, Danny, so another important facet of this testing battery is endurance. Um, I want to just touch on that and explain the importance of endurance when you're talking about youth athletes, especially coming up at this age group. So for youth athletes, endurance is important because it's the one primer they can always improve and they can always work on. Um, some athletes, depending on if they are mature physically for their age or not, or even mentally for their age or not, can't work on strength. They can't work even on pure power sometimes because they don't have the muscle power for it, they don't have the hormone base for it, they don't have the mental state for it. But every kid in those younger age groups can work on in their endurance. Um, that's why so many of the, of the base problems you see just in physical education are based on, you know, can you endure? Can you do some basic work? And can you get, you know, a certain amount of time done? That's why everything we say about kids for physical participation and, and activity is, you know, can you do 20 minutes three or four times a week consistently of cardio type work to stay healthy? So endurance base is probably the most important. The other reason why it's important, especially like looking at hockey for an example is, when your body has got good endurance, it means that when you're sitting on the bench, it, your body can recover quicker and better and more efficiently. You might be on the bench for three or five minutes and out in the shift for like one and a half minutes, which ends up being a two minute time frame with whistles. So if you're doing two minutes of on off work and you're going really hard, 
then when you get back to the bench, you have to make sure your body can recover in only three minutes before you get thrown back out there again. And if your body can't recover, you're going to go out and make mistakes. And when you make mistakes, a couple things go wrong, but one most important thing that could go wrong is you getting injured. So endurance is, is the most preventative method to stopping injuries because it means your body can endure the work you want to put it through for the time frame you want to put it through it. Right. And I've always said, like I touched on before, the stuff that we do at the FH gym with Dennis is, is much more to me about um, controlling that fatigue percentage and, and limiting your time, the time that it takes for your body to recover between sets. I think that when you're tired, it's an age old saying, you know, your brain is the first thing to go. Um, and so if you want to make smarter decisions, if you want to make better decisions, win more battles, um, win more games over the course of a season, over the course of a career, really, um, you have to be in better shape. You have to be able to withstand more and recover quicker than the person sitting next to you or, you know, lining up across from you on the other team. So. Absolutely. I guess the main thing to look at is make fatigue happen by design, not by chance. If it happens by chance or it happens by mistake, then the opponent's winning. If it happens by design, then you're in control of it and you can fix it and you can use it when you want to. So in a sport like hockey and in, the, and in youth development age groups, um, we can do beep tests. We can do all kinds of other running tests and that that we have out there. You can even do some milder tests. But the problem with those is the space you need, the kind of track and field setup you need to have as well. And realistically, kids won't go out and practice those kinds of things and work on those kinds of things. So I prefer looking at a, a short shuttle type test. It's still about their endurance capacity. If we do the right amount of time frame with it at the right point in the testing sequence, then we're looking at an already sort of fatigued athlete and we're making them hustle really hard for three to five minutes and that will give us a real good information on how, how much can they resist basic endurance fatigue. Um, it's not quite the same as the repeat sprint test because the repeat sprint test has small intermittent breaks there, which is a huge difference to what your body can re-energize re itself with and change and buffer capacities for lactic acid and, and other kinds of energy systems. But in a three-minute straight test, you've gone through all the major energy systems and you've actually got to a point where your body's saying, oh my God, I can't sustain pace anymore. And that's what we're trying to do is make sure what is the pace that you can sustain and what can't you sustain? Find out what the difference is between those two, find out that threshold, and then start to work on improving that. Amazing. So Denny, uh, from what we have here, uh, I know that the, the people out there listening, they think that this is a, a ton of information that we're giving them. And, and while it is, you know, it sounds like there's so many tests to run through. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, the actual protocol and the time frame in which it takes to, to do this kind of thing, because I know that people listening out there think that this is a you know, a, a, a week-long process or a 24-hour process that it takes to, to perform all these testing batteries. Um, explain to me why it is or it isn't. Okay, well, it's a great, great point and a great question. So one thing you're looking at with this kind of stuff is we're doing field testing. So this is information we can get almost anywhere with a team. If I was traveling with a team internationally, we could still repeat the same tests. It doesn't take much to pack this equipment up. If, if I'm traveling around doing a, a mass organization and doing 20 teams in one organization, we can do it anywhere the same way and still get highly repeatable information. So the way we do that is we have really tight controls. There's tight controls on the actual form and function of each test, but there's also tight controls on the timing of each test. So the idea here is that all the tests we've talked about, we've talked about repeat long jump, we've talked about a seated medicine ball test, push-ups, a repeat sprint test, and a three-minute endurance type test. All those tests in total will be done by one participant in a matter of about 16 minutes from beginning to end. And if we do that properly, it means that every kid who walks into, this, into the testing sequence will also be done within about 16 minutes. 
So now one kid isn't sitting around waiting for another kid to finish the test, and then therefore they're getting longer rest while the other kid got less rest, and then a kid an hour later gets even more rest or less rest because you fall behind the schedule. That's one of the problems what we do when we do youth testing is people don't plan out for all the worst-case scenarios. So we take out the worst-case scenarios by saying, you have exactly this much time to repeat this test. Ready, set, go. And again, if an athlete doesn't get the test or can't follow the test, that's information we're collecting. If you can't follow directions in only one minute, then how good are you going to be when you're on the ice or when you're out in the field performing your sport, when a coach is yelling at you at what he wants you to do or she needs you to do? We're looking at the idea that you have to become a really good developed athlete. We're developing young athletes into older athletes and smarter athletes. So the way you get that is by listening, having good listening skills, having good following skills, getting along with the directions, and understanding the cues that are given to you very short and very sweet. So in 16 minutes, we can get all these tests done, we can get a full profile report, and the science breakdown really is looking through the formulas and making it user-friendly for the parents and the players and the coaches who are going to get this report afterwards and be able to say to them, here's what Johnny or Joey or Jenny needs to work on, and here's what the other kids need to work on. And everybody can see what they want to work on and how they want to improve. All right, so we went into a little bit of depth with, uh, with form there. Um, form is a very important topic, especially in your programming, Denny. Um, you know, having a, a military background uh, is something that made us much more disciplined athletes coming in and out of here year after year. Um, and form was always at the, the heart of everything. I remember, you know, coming up through uh, my beginning phases as a, as a youth athlete and, and thinking like, this guy is on me all the time and I'm not going to be able to finish these this many reps in this time frame where I, 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 I was obsessed with benching or squatting X amount of weight. But, you know, the truth is that if your form is, is great, over time you'll be able to seamlessly transition from weight class to weight class and become a better athlete overall. Absolutely. I, I think that's one of the most important things. I think the problem with form now today in the market today is that people are overdoing some part, portions of form in the sense that coaches are trying to make themselves more important than the actual exercise. So a guy wants to sit there and talk to you for 15 minutes about how your form has to change, you know, one degree of your hips instead of saying, you know what, let's do the work. And as you get better and you, and we can see that you get more form, we can start to tweak it a little bit more every day. So five days from now, you'll have a lot of work done, some good work capacity built up and your form will also be better. Instead, people are doing a lot more time talking instead of actually doing. So there's a fine line between overworking on how much form you have and underworking how much form you have. And like you mentioned, a, a military version of this is, yeah, you know what, I want to do this really well, but you got to get it done first and foremost. If you don't get it done, it doesn't matter how well it's done. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of athletes have to learn to finish properly. And it's the same thing on ice or on the field or anything like that, is make sure you can finish properly. So in our case, when I look at form, I'm looking at things like when the rules are set for a repeat long jump, the rules are set. The form is important for the athlete to understand, and the rules are imp very important for the evaluator to understand. And the problem we have in the industry mostly right now is the fact that people aren't evaluating consistently, and they're not explaining to the athletes what it is they're trying to find or see. I don't need to tell an athlete on, on push-ups, I'm looking for you know, your ability to do push-ups. I don't even have to tell them that I'm looking for their strength in their upper body. What I have to tell them is, I want your nose to touch the floor, I want your arms to go this full extension, I want your body to stay like this. That's what's important. Now ready, set, go. Instead of sitting there getting into all the other things about, well, let's work on your strength, Joey. Joey doesn't care. He's got two minutes to get this test done. He's running behind right now. He has to follow directions. He needs to know what to do, how to get it done, and get it done nice and crisp and cleanly. If every test is run that way, then by the time we finish a full testing sequence with one athlete or with an entire team of athletes, there's no doubt that the data that's collected is fair, repeatable, 
and has been done with the benefit of the entire concept of the entire team rather than just one individual. If Joey can't do a push-up properly, he needs to know it right away and not waste his time. Joey, you're done. Two tries, you didn't make it, you're out, let's go to the next test. He might not like it, might not feel good about it, but he will want to either improve his push-ups or not improve his push-ups. But that's a choice for Joey to make. I think that the response like you hit on is the most important part to all of this because yes, you know, your testing battery and your ranking system after this is all done, that is that is fantastic information that we're gonna be giving out to, to everyone involved. However, just like with the draft, just like with, you know, being picked up by a team or not, it's all in the athlete's response to the scenario. Absolutely. You know what I mean? So, I mean, you're drafted late round or you're drafted first round or you're not selected at all. You know, how, what are you doing in the next four to six months after that or the season or two seasons or three seasons after that, following that, leading up to your next draft ability or the next season? And how are you responding to that and, and learning from it, learning who you are and working on becoming, you know, narrowing the gap between your last game and your best game? Okay, so when testing in the gym, versus testing on the ice, which we will have in this combine. Um, what do you feel are the most important things? I know we have some, some stuff listed, but talk to me about the importance of on-ice testing and what kind of implementation you'd like to see. So on-ice testing or any kind of on-field testing for sport is really important because we're getting the, the true data that we can actually also see happen in play. Um, the problem with that is that, you know, especially in the young age groups, we're talking about still gathering all their physical literacies and their skill development and with their long-term athletic development, which are all the three things we worry about the most, there's no guarantee that every kid's at the same level yet. So um, the reason why we pick certain tests off the ice, like the three-minute test for endurance, is an endurance test by skating around the rink so many times isn't necessarily going to tell us for sure just the ability for that athlete's heart and lungs to work. It's going to tell us a little bit more about their skating style and skating technique. And while that sounds great, I don't care about that for three minutes. It's not going to help a lot of coaches or anybody else either. So if we get that information off the ice, then we can spend the good quality time on the ice doing other tests. On ice tests typically have got to go more to the skill sets. So we're looking at starts, stops, shots, um, and some positional awareness. So if those are the tests that we have on the ice, so looking at your agility type tests on the ice, looking at your start and stop type tests on the ice, your just explosive start, sprint, one line direction, um, some of your shooting tests. And shooting tests can be for speed or power if you have a radar gun, but they can simply just be for accuracy. You know, how long does it take you to fire off 10 pucks from a set distance and how many do you put in a, in a bucket in the net? If we can find that kind of information out across an entire group of people, we have a standard now. So it's really not a rocket science, it's more about keeping the science as simple as possible and allowing athletes to have numbers they can try and push and develop. If you take a pro athlete and you did that same bucket test in the net with 10 pucks from a set distance and he did it when he was 14, there's no guarantee that guy's gonna necessarily be 100% better at it when he's 22. We wanna find that out. And he wants to find that out. Whereas if we're doing a test, it's only one test he ever does at one camp, one spot, and he never sees it again ever in his life and can't repeat it on his own, then really he's not getting a lot of information he can practically use. He's getting one piece of information from one test sequence, one weekend in one spot. And so if we can give people the ideas of here's how you set it up, blue line and blue line, or this mark to this mark, and it's constant across most rings you go to, then the problem is solved. Exactly. It's all about how this kind of physical fitness testing and your training in general will translate to on ice performance this season, two seasons from now, and you know, eight or nine seasons from now. And as we dive into long-term athletic development and such a, a broad topic and a broad spectrum, but it's something that is, 
again, near and dear to us here at the, at the Athletes' Gym and at Shifted Hockey. And, um, you know, Dennis, is a, a, you're an enormous proponent of that, and you've done great work in, in the past and in the present. Um, how will this testing battery focus on long-term transferability um, on and off the ice and lead to, you know, these athletes gaining an understanding of who they are and also bettering themselves in the not-too-distant future and distant future? Right. Yeah. Those are, again, great points. The, the thing about long-term athletic development, again, in the industry right now, in the health fitness industry, is that people have just started to throw the term around loosey-goosey and, and just say it to try and sell the idea of what they do. Um, true long-term athletic development is, is seen in progress and in process. So the testing that we've talked about, all these things we've talked about, uh, if they're repeatable, if they are easy to measure and see, if I can do it again myself next week because I choose to, then at least I can see if I'm actually improving. I'm not saying that Johnny or Joey should go out there and use these tests every single week to try and improve their ability to do these tests because that's a different way to try and beat a test score. We want to see that you're a better athlete, not that you're better at one test only. Like I said about bench press, you're not trying to become a better bench presser, you're trying to become a better athlete in a sport of hockey and take bench press to protect yourself out there. So in the case of all these tests, it's about repeatability. In the case of long-term athletic development, the issue we run into is the fact that athletes have got to have a real solid foundation and base. And you'll notice, even in the things we've talked about mostly have been that as much as we're testing your physical abilities and all these different things on ice or off ice, we're testing your mental ability too. It's about your attitude and your capacity for work. If you have the right capacity, that's the first step because now you're coachable, now you're workable, now a coach can get more out of exactly. you and you can get more out of yourself. Exactly, such a great, great point from someone who has seen so many, so many athletes year after year and understands that the first and foremost priority of these young men and women should be to be the most coachable athlete that you can possibly be. Um, learning something after a brief description, um, maybe a, a quick uh, demonstration, and then implementing the work. It's, it's as simple as that. You know, you find out what you have to do and you do it because you know, in the classroom, on the job site, in your career, um, as a hockey player as well, you're going to be forced into situations where you're going to have very little time to make a decision, and you need to make an effective and efficient decision the right way, and that's by learning and listening to what your coach or, or teacher or boss wants from you at a specific point, and learning to strategize and implement that as quickly and effectively as you can. So. Um, yes, fantastic information. Denny, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. My pleasure. Um, you know, like I said, fantastic information. Um, I hope that you, know, you guys are listening out there, are, uh, you know, understanding the value of what Dennis has to say. And uh, Denny, again, thank you so much. My pleasure. Always happy to be with Part of Shifted. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening in today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And we hope that the information we are providing is helping you in your self-development and your athletic development altogether. Feel free to leave us a comment on any of our social platforms and let us know what you think. We are always listening. We are always growing to make sure that we are bringing you the best content and the best information we possibly can. And as we keep doing it, we will keep illustrating ways that you can keep doing it as well. Thank you again for your attention, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.